So it is fashion week, uh, unfortunately, due to COVID-19, when everything was shut down, we did not gather. Those people who cover the fashion collections did not gather because it was unsafe. Now, very carefully, people are gathering. So lots of folks are abuzz thinking and talking about fashion. And I thought it would be fantastic to talk to a dear friend of mine, a man who I've known for many years and worked with on many different projects, who has a wonderful project that he's going to talk to us about that has just come out. He is the superstar photographer, Keith Major. Let's welcome him now. Hey, Keith. Hey. hey. Yeah, welcome, right. welcome. I'm so happy to have you here on my show. You know, Thanks, Keith, what, what Dream Leapers is all about is inspiring people to access and activate their dreams. And what I know about you is through your creativity, you've been activating your own dream, but also in working with so many people to bring their beauty and spirit to life through imagery. This has been a part of your work for probably your whole career. Uh, how did you get started as a photographer? I started um, very early. I was a uh, elementary school um, uh, art student. Um, I was always interested in the arts. Um, it may have started in kindergarten because I remember uh, the one thing that I enjoyed was painting. And I remember doing this finger painting and proclaiming to my father that I was going to be an artist when I grew up. Wow. And was he um, supportive back then? He was very supportive. I was very lucky to have the kind of father who was a dreamer. So my father was the kind of person that if you came home and said you wanted to be an Olympic gymnast, he would support that. And then he would, you know, between he and my mother, they would figure out a game plan. And then he would, he would, uh, admonish you if you weren't doing your exercises. So oh um, he was very serious about that. So he supported me in the arts. And long story short, I segued into photography kind of serendipitously. Uh, the art classes were full at uh, extracurricular thing that I used to do at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, I was taking art classes there and the art classes were full um, due to my mother's chronic lateness. And, uh, and so... <laughs> And so I was a, a, a screaming brat, and um, one of the photo instructors noticed that I was complaining about not getting into class. He needed more students and needed to keep his job, so he said, talk him into my class. Ah. And I begrudgingly took the class. I think I might have been about nine. And... Um, and you it know, was a photography class? It was a photography class. We sat in the dark room and talked for a little while, and I was fascinated just being there. And then when he took us in, into the dark room and showed us the uh, print being developed, I was hooked. From then on, I've been hooked ever since. And it's funny I'm because... Nine years old. Wow. Yeah. And so by 12, by 12, I had it was already planned that I was going to go to the High School of Art and Design or in a high school of music and art, whichever one I got into, I ended right. up. Uh, I ended up at art and design um, because music and art didn't have a photo program. Mm -hmm. um, they had just ended it the year that I would be beginning. So I went to music and art high school, but then I also I planned to go to RIT, which was a college. Oh, where you went to art and design high school, right? I went to art and design high school, and then from there I went to Rochester Institute of Technology. But all of this Wonderful. was planned at twelve years old. 
Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, and uh, and then the plan was to get out of school, work for a photographer for a, a bit to learn the craft. Um, I worked for Anthony Barboza for a year, um, and I learned maybe in four months more than I learned in four years of college. Um, <laughs> now for, for folks who may not know, because Anthony Barboza is a legend, at least yes. in the photography uh, world of black people, but I think even beyond that, can you just yes. tell us, give us a sense of who Tony Barboza is for folks who are listening? So for folks who don't know, Tony Barboza Boza is sort of like that now the the sage old sage guru but he was that then when i when i uh worked for him and he was one of the leading black photographers in in media in general um let alone uh black media he was a leading uh just a leader uh written books uh had showed in a lot of galleries lots of fashion shows lots of uh, i mean lots of fashion uh, editorial um he was like the guy and the time that i worked for him he was kind of uh, doing a lot of covers with um, Essence magazine. And so at that time, he was the guy that I wanted to be like. Um, so I would were you say assisting he him? What, what the most like role? important parts. Um, he, I was assisting him. My role was to uh, basic do, basically do things like studio manage. Um, so I was taking phone calls, uh, receiving models, comp cards, um, assisting him on photo shoots, making sure that all the gear was correct, that we had all the proper equipment in place when we went on photo shoots, uh, those kinds of things, or just running errands, picking up equipment, picking up his meals, um, you know, a lot of grunt work. Uh, but I learned so much, so much. And around, when, around when was this when you were working for Tony? I got out of college in 84, and I worked for Tony from 84 to 85. Um, so this is, important, this is important too, Keith, for people to know because especially today, yes. if you have a smartphone, you think you're a photographer. And my husband, as you know, who is also a photographer, loses yes. his mind. Yes. assisting a photographer and really learning under the tutelage of someone who has studied for a long time and has mastered the craft is very important. Um, very important. Unfortunately, the younger generation seems to have tried, they've tried to throw out the apprentice model. Um, but um, let's put it this way. I was talking to a brilliant young sister at, a, at an event once and somehow we got on the conversation about goals and dreams and she said that she cooks really well and she wants to be a caterer. And I said to her, well, you know, you're really bright, um, but you don't know anything about catering. I said, given the way you are carrying yourself and the way you talk to me, here's the formula. Work for a caterer for a year. Yes. You'll learn what to do. You'll even learn what not to do. You'll learn how the business works, and you'll be able to form your own business based on the experience of being there. And that's, that's the magic of apprenticeship. It basically yeah. you have your raw foundation and your raw desire, but a pro will show you not only how to carry yourself, um, but he'll show you the nuances, or she will show you the nuances of that career, and uh, and you're learning on their time and their dime. You will even see their mistakes and learn from them. So I'm so glad you're talking about this, Keith, because you've just told us that 
you were introduced to photography at nine. By 12, you've made up your mind, including where you were going to go to school. Look, Keith, right now my daughter's applying to college. We didn't figure this out when she was nine. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> Most people don't. I was, I was a rare, a rare bird. You figured it out. But even with figuring it out as a child, what was important for you to get to where you are today was to apprentice, to learn under someone uh, who knew more. And I just hope everybody is hearing this loud and clear. Even though this is not the 80s, their mistakes as well as their triumphs and you can figure out your own way but to yes. assume that you know everything without having exposure and and some guidance I just I just think it takes a lot longer to be good at whatever it is that you choose yes. and it's a marathon and the, the thing that you don't want to happen is you get put in a place where, because I've seen this happen to people where you don't have the experience and you have an apprentice and you get a gig that you're quite, just not quite ready for. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't work. And then you're not called on again. And then your career makes that hard left turn that none of us want to make and that you may not come back from. Um, and so, and so after the apprenticeship, it's the practice too. Um, I've told a lot of young photographers that you've got to take pictures, which was which was told to me by, um, you know, another peer. I remember Joe Grant explaining to me, got to test, got to take pictures. And Joe Grant was a photographer who also assisted Tony Barbosa. He went on to own uh, photo rental studios and has done really well in that space. But anyway, Joe Grant was the one who told me, you got to take pictures. You need those pictures. I didn't quite understand what he was talking about at the time, but I did it. And what I learned was not only did I have things to show, but I went through all of the growing pains of figuring it out so that by the time I got on a real ad job and let's say something happened that required a pivot or, or explaining to the client why you're doing something or I had experienced those um, issues in small tests and little shoots. And so I had gotten all of that other stuff out of the way and so that I could, you know, perform better on the big stage because I had learned a lot of tricks of the trade along the way on smaller models. Smart. And you said that Tony was doing uh, work work with Tony or how did you get to uh, work with that publication, which remains such a big platform? Do you um, remember? Some, some of that, some of that was bro broken up. So I didn't hear all of what you said, but I, I guess that you're asking that Tony was working for essence and other publications. And how did I get to, um, it becomes sort of like an osmosis kind of thing. And, and, and I guess a better way to put that is there are two things that I can say. The first, I remember the first day that we did a beauty story uh, for Essex. And at the time, it was Reggie Wells and Michael Weeks. So they came in to set up hair and makeup. It's early in the day. But then the model walked in, and I looked at the model in my greediness, and I'm like, oh, my God. Because I didn't know anything about what made a model. I also didn't know the math of clean face, clean hair. 
So she walked in looking raw and to my young eyes, unkept. And I'm like, oh my God, this is gonna take oh, a long oh. time. I don't know if this is gonna work. I'm thinking this to myself. And about an hour later, she comes out of hair and makeup. And right away I said, oh my God, I have no idea what's going on. I've got a lot to know. <laughs> because she walked out looking stunning and like a completely different person. So then once that was set in, then I just realized that I needed to observe everything that's going on in this space because I don't, there's a lot that I need to learn. Um, but also in that space, you have um, makeup artists or makeup artist assistants or young models who want to test. And so they were to approach me during downtime and they'd say, so who are you? What are you doing? Do you test? Would you like to test? And test is sort of that code word back then for, you know, shoot. Um, uh, basically shoot for free for our portfolios that everybody gets something out of it. And so just being on those sets, I began testing with the, the younger model on the set. So like, for instance, we had a gig for Essence and Dolores Henderson was on set and she was the youngest model. So she gravitated to me and said, let's test. So I tested with her. Um, Al Grundy uh, was a makeup artist, uh, may he rest yeah. in peace. Um, and Michael Weeks as well, rest in peace. But Al Grundy had pulled me aside. He he was dating a friend of mine and he said, I hear that, you know, you're eager to do this. I have some some models that like to test, uh, you know, let's work together. Um, and so that's how I got my feet wet. And what happens is slowly but surely, you start to make the connections and then before. We've worked on so many projects over the years. Uh, it's been quite amazing. I wanted to have you on now in particular because there is a beautiful cover that you have produced for Ebony Magazine, the new Ebony Magazine. I remember, again, I say I've had 39 lives, Keith. So year, from 2007 to 2010, I was at Ebony. Yes. And I remember we were... Yes, I was part of your line. show. Yes, indeed. We, we worked together during that moment. And Ebony, which is such an important legacy brand, has been struggling. And there's a new team in place. New ownership. Very hard to uh, revive the brand. And I didn't realize that you were the photo director. Not only did you shoot the cover of Jennifer Hudson, but you're yes. directing all of photography. So congratulations Thank you. on everything. And please tell us about working with Jennifer Hudson. Well, you know, as you know, um, my experience working with Jennifer Hudson started with you. Uh, you and I did a fabulous cover for um, the older Ebony title with the uh, the, uh, the old ownership. Yep. Um, with uh, we had Jennifer Hudson, Alicia Keys, and, and um, Sophie Okanedu. And yeah, and, well, and the cover was, and, and and Sophie was it was part of that. They were all in the cast of Secret Life of That's Bees. Bees. And, and uh, yeah, so we did a really fabulous cover with them. And so that was my introduction to Jennifer Hudson. Um, and then I, I ended up working with her after that for another incarnation of Ebony when Jennifer was in the cast of Color Purple. Oh. So I was very familiar with how she liked to uh, be on set, what her requirements were, the kind of person she was. So now that, you know, we both grown more, Jennifer and I. Um, now we find ourselves on set shooting um, a cover story where now she's the cover um, yeah. by herself. 
and we're um, you know, and we're in you know first-rate uh, couture fashion. Um, it was really exciting. Um, I think the cool part about it was being able to be the lead on how we were going to light it, what it was going to look like, um, and being a part of what the fashion was going to be and knowing ahead of time what it was we were shooting, and even directing the video crew to match their lighting and their aesthetic to what I was doing. So that was very exciting. Um, and just seeing Jennifer in those outfits and making choices to allow her to look her best. And then it, we did so well that her, her people were ecstatic. They were like, oh my God, this is amazing. You are really good. She's never looked this good. And I, and I always say to people on set when they start giving me those flowers, like, listen, I can't do this without Jennifer. I That's can't do right. this without the team. We are doing this. Because it's, it's, it's a collaborative effort. I know it's my job as a photographer to do photography things and to move the ship forward. But it takes a village. And I, it, that is not a singular effort. You know, it, it's the whole team made, made, made that happen. And so who were the key team members? I would first want to say um, our editor-in-chief, Mario Bobo, has a really forward, exquisite vision. Yes. And it's funny because I was, I was joking with her just yesterday that very often the process is she says, okay, we're going to do this, come back with a mood board. And generally I come with a mood board that's three steps behind where she is. Wow. And she goes, well, no, that's not what we want to do. That's expected of me. We're going to do this. And then I understand immediately why she's correct. I make the pivot, get on board, and then execute. And I would say that almost we've, we've done a, quite a few projects together on a variety of titles, Mariel and I. And I find right. that, that that is almost always the process. I don't even know why she asked me to do a mood board. Because every time <laughs> I do one, it's like she's always two or three steps ahead of whatever my concept is. And so I have to give her a lion's share of the credit for, you know, what this is. And, and so then my job was like, okay, well, Mario, I want to light it this way. And I had examples. And here's the other thing. Um, in any career that you're taking, I had examples because I had been working. And many of the examples were editorial, self, self-promoted editorials. In other words, they weren't shots that were in magazines. They were just things that I did on my time on my dime to uh, to illustrate my creativity. And then also just to keep my creative juices flowing. Because my process I've found is I need to do my own thing on my time so that I get all that creative energy out. Then I have not only something to show, but I can show up to work and do and work collaboratively and don't and I don't have I don't feel the need to do my thing because I've already done my thing. Well um, that goes back Keith the best testing is is creating what you want for yourself right yes and i do a lot of that on my time and very often what i find is you have something to show uh and people go oh, i like that can you do that for me um and in this case 
Um, that lighting scheme that I used on Jennifer was something that I had worked out in a variety of tests. And so I had a chance, I had something to show and say, this is what I want to do. And then I was also able to pull some of the imagery done on her and other publications that I liked. So we were able to put together a deck that made sense um, as per Mario's request once, you know, I threw out the old deck. Because the old deck was more of the um, older Aretha Franklin sort of like way of doing it. And she wanted to sort of like go one step further. And so being photo director for Ebony in this new moment for Ebony, I know that's a lot of pressure. Ebony is historically it known is. for its photography and it's known right now for being challenged. So what is the vision that you bring to this refreshed Ebony that you hope will be able to carry it forward? We are still growing and I'm still growing in that role. And so, um, I've only been able to uh, affect a few things. I've been do I've done two covers, directed a third cover that's supposed to come out uh, in a few weeks. Um, I didn't shoot that one, but I directed it, and uh, and I've I've hired photographers for a few things. My legacy has been that I photograph our people well, mm -hmm. and I've been a student of that, and so photographers that do that um, I'm aware of and I tr I want to bring that knowledge and that passion to the magazine. So I want to be able to oversee and make sure that we are always looking our best, um, that we have photographs that are representative of our true beauty. And that's my vision. And my vision is that we will look at those images and enjoy what we see. Beautiful. And, and to the key point that you made, you know, what I know about your work in particular is that you really, you talk about lighting and, and uh, something I know from my husband is photography is all about lighting, no matter what you say. It's all, I mean, if you don't get the lighting right, forget about it, right? But That's to right. light brown skin to, in all the many shades of uh, brown that many black people have, which you have become a master of is essential. And yeah. so often if you look at photographs and um, video of brown skin people when they're not lit for their skin, but they're lit for someone much paler, then the the images don't work so well. Who exactly. taught you? Who taught you about lighting for brown skin? And let, let's talk about that process. You know, it's funny. Um, I had always been fairly adept at at, at lighting. For my photographs, um, almost by accident, because at first for me it was always the composition. I paid very yeah. little attention to the light. I paid every, all my attention was on composition. Um, but then as I grew um, as a photographer, I realized that lighting was important. <clears throat> so watching Tony Barboza and how he lit was the beginning. Um, and then I began to play with and modify lights as per what I like to do in my test. And it's funny because I took a job after Tony Barboza, I took a job at a photo studio. Um, and my plan was to have this steady gig that was paying me fairly well, but shoot my own things, evens and weekends and get busy enough that either they fire me or I could quit. And the latter happened. I quit. And I actually, not only did I quit, I stayed at the studio and ended up paying rent for the space 
and the office that I was in. <laughs> that wow. I was working so you with. had a now good relationship. I had a great relationship with them. And also they liked having me on board because I could help consult their photography department because I was, you know, good at that sort of thing. Um, so I just kind of, I kind of played around with lighting and I think that's the, that's the thing. I think when you, when you put time into whatever your craft is, um, you'll, you'll find the magic, uh, you know, you'll find the magic places. You'll find, you know, the, the jewels and the gold and the flowers and all those little things that help. And I just paid attention to that. And one of the things that I noticed very early on was um, a lot of the black models weren't being lit the same as the white models. Um, and what I realized, and even in photographing white models, I realized that, oh, the white models are getting more light in many cases. Because one of the things that happens for us because of the nature of who we are and the nature of our struggle um, and how we're perceived in this country there's this whole light skin, dark skin, this whole thing. And so yeah. there are times where you might light someone and someone says, says you tried to make them look too light or too white. So I had to be conscious of that. But what I realized was more light was flattering. More light washed away blemishes. More light gave you, um, really illuminated your natural beauty. And what was happening was the white talent was getting a lot of light because no one would ever say she's too white. Right. So they had a chance to look pretty. Whereas the black girl, it was sort of like, she got less light because we want to keep her skin tone. So I had to straddle that, that, that I found a way to straddle that line technically where I could give people, our people more light because that illuminates their beauty um, rather than less light to try to, keep the skin tone. And so I found that I was able to to balance the two and find a way that that worked. But it, it was real so math. I literally thought about it and tested it. That's so interesting because I have seen since criticism of black talent that got washed out. Oh, you're trying to make her white. Yes. And especially if she's on the cover of a mainstream Publication, yes. oh, just trying to make that person white, and the yes. criticism can reach a crescendo, right? I yes. didn't think about what you just said, though. The reason for uh, the wash of light on the face, yeah, yeah, and so, and and it's unfortunate because you know it's sort of like you know I'd see Christy Turlington in the elevator, and she'd be at least three shades darker than any photograph that I'd seen of her anywhere, you know. And so that was giving them an unfair advantage in the beauty space. That, Nobody I really. Think, I think we just got a secret, y'all. I think that Keith just gave us a secret. Yes, a little yes. inside. You know, it's really it, it's it's funny because there's a whole math and science. In fact, I had a funny situation once. I had a test with a, a coworker of mine, an attractive girl, and I took a Polaroid of her, and she didn't look anything. She didn't look not nearly as attractive as I thought to my eyes. And so then I started changing my camera settings, changing my lighting, and I fell into a zone. And what I found was when I gave her more light and slowed down the shutter, she looked prettier and more like herself. Wow. 
And I realized then that, so for years, it's changed a little with digital because the math is different. But with film, for a lot of my beauty, I would shoot soft and slow because people needed to breathe. And the camera was like so fast that it would catch this stop action that your eyes never see. And if you're not careful, it can be unflattering. So you have to, you have to make the math work in your favor to allow for beauty. You have to allow some life into the, uh, into the lens. It's really crazy. It was really tricky. Um, well, and you just mentioned math. And so I, again, to everybody listening who said, I don't need to take math. I don't care about math. Every subject is important. Yes. Right? Yes. That's crazy. That, that, that's crazy. So Keith, Let's talk about some of the people that you would say have been the most memorable uh, people that you have photographed over the years. Who might some of those people be? Um, let's start with Aretha Franklin, because I actually photographed Aretha um, for a jet cover. And it was very interesting. It was later in her career, um, of course, because it is. Um, I think it was like, I would want to say the 2000s. And it was very interesting because we had to photograph her in a hotel room. And if anyone who's been around Aretha famously knows she doesn't like air conditioning. So if you're in a room with Aretha Franklin, it's going to be hot. And so the room was very warm and a bit uncomfortable. And Aretha, that was one of the few shoots. I very rarely struggle with finding a person's beauty. But that day I struggled because I, I... Aretha's weight was more than I had expected it to be. And and just what she was wearing and the way she was sitting and just trying to navigate, I was really struggling. And I I had photographs and we was, by then we were shooting digital. And I had photographs that I wasn't quite sure about. And she said, let me see. So I showed her the photograph. She goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she goes right there. And she points to a spot on her face and I immediately saw it all come to life. Wow. It was the wildest thing I'd ever happened because, so then I had to send the photographs to the retoucher and the retoucher literally said, I have no idea where to begin because Aretha's weight around her neck was just a little, just a little more than we wanted it to be. Uh, the more, more than the way we picture Aretha Franklin. Um, and I said to the retoucher, I said, all I know is Aretha said, start here. And I pointed mm -hmm. to that same spot on the face, and the reason was like, "Oh, I get it." It was the, it was insane, and it was as wow. if, Aretha, and and that was one of the most interesting things that Aretha knew that she had to give me the clue to how to retouch her for her to look like herself, basically. That's because we're not retouching folks to look like not who they are. We know it's Aretha Franklin, but it's sort of like absolutely. Yeah, but that was, a, I never forgot that. It was so amazing to me. It was like a magic trick. So, Keith, I appreciate you telling the story about um, Aretha Franklin also from a real perspective. Yes. Because you could just say somebody who's young and iconic and, you know, perhaps easy to photograph, but to give, you know, one of our most revered icons at a moment when she was in a more tender space and you were still able to figure it out. And that is something that I think has been true for your work all along. You you don't just shoot the skinny girls. You, you oh. photograph everybody and find the beauty in everybody. How, 
what is, can you talk about the relationship that a photographer has with the subject? Because when a person gets in front of you to take a picture, I don't care who it is, you get a little bit self-conscious because suddenly somebody's looking at you. How do you develop a rapport with the subject to be comfortable and confident? I think that I've been fortunate that I have a a God-given gift to see people at their best. I literally see out of my eyes every day when I'm not photographing. I see everyone's beauty. That's just a normal thing for me. Um, and fortunately, I've been able to translate that into photography and, and on set. And I think because that energy is in me, I give that to the subject. I find that I, I don't really work that hard to make subjects feel comfortable, and yet they do. And when I see that they're feeling uncomfortable, I say, listen, they're just pictures. There are many other things that you're going to be doing that are way more important than this. Just relax and be yourself. Because at the end of the day, if it looks bad, they're going to say, who shot this? They're not going to say you look bad. So, <laughs> you know, they'll blame me. So I'm going to do all that I can to make you look great so I can continue to work. <laughs> but... Generally, I just find that I, I like my sets to be comfortable, not too tense, and and people just fall in. I also tend to, without being obtrusive, I kind of watch the subject, and I see the moments that they look their best, and I sometimes direct you into what I had already seen you do naturally that looks flattering to my eye. And so I, I, I pull that out. It's funny, I was on the street one day and I I saw this woman who was with her family and she was warm and loving and had this great personality, but she half of her face was deformed. It was falling. It was the weirdest deformity, but I found that I could see her beauty. And then it was weird because I'm like, well, I don't want her to think I'm staring at her because I think she looks odd. It was like I was staring because, oh my God, I literally see her beauty and and I see how she's interacting with her family. And I can't, I can't believe that I can look at what might be described as a deformity and see her beauty and her majesty. And it was, and I, then I'm like trying to do math. Like, how can I convince her to, and I was not brave enough to convince her to, to take a picture of her, but, but, um, it was moments like that that I cherish. And I, and I cherish photographing people that aren't models more than the models. For me, the models, um, that lives in a space of a certain kind of creativity for me. It becomes line and form and light and the clothing, and then maybe experimenting with different kinds of lighting techniques, different angles, different lenses, because that's what the skinny pretty girl allows you to do. Um, There's no angle where she's going to look unattractive. And so I can play and fool around and figure out some math that I can apply later to other people. So let's talk about this moment in time where inclusivity is everything. You know, you you mentioned looking at that woman and seeing her beauty. We now see people with vitiligo. We see people uh, with uh, deformities. You know, maybe I I saw someone recently who had lost part of her arm. And we see people who are uh, round and full figured. And I mean, I think of Lizzo, who's like, I will yes. show you my beauty exactly as I am. I mean, things have changed dramatically over yeah. the years. Uh, how do you approach your photographs given this uh, space of inclusivity that we're living in now? 
That's a good question um, because I don't think that I've yet addressed that. Um, and I think maybe it's because I've always photographed different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And so it was never a thing for me to now pivot from shooting models to everybody else because I always shot everybody else. Um, what I like about, what I will say is I love what's happening because I think that we are slowly moving towards a more elevated way of being where we are more loving towards each other. Um, and that's what, that's the, that's the, that's what inclusivity is, the march towards inclusivity is trying to do. We're trying to find ways to begin to remember or realize that we are all part of one community. We are all human beings and we all share the same planet and that we desperately need to find ways to work together and love each other. It's, it's odd that we don't even, it's odd we don't do it because we are already doing it. I mean, we're, we already work together. You and I are on a platform that's right now that is being run by a variety of people um, who made this happen, who made this technology available on computers that someone else has manufactured in homes right. that people have built. I mean, we are actually, we have actually already a, a world's community without even knowing it. So there's just that one click, that one step to realize that we are all brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, aunts and uncles and cousins, and we need to respect each other and love each other and work together. I, I love that. You know, we, we are currently very much still in the space of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with with I think the tipping point being George Floyd's murder, which is now over a year ago, us being in, still in part in quarantine and yes. I think many people trying to figure out our way forward. I'm curious for you and your work, how, how has the Black Lives Matter movement affected your work? Um, it's interesting. For me, um, there have been moments where I've received recognition that I wasn't getting before. So that, for instance, um, Italian Vogue posted something that I had photographed and gave me credit. Whereas in the past, um, now, of course, the subject was Iris Bell. She's an older white woman. But in the past, it would have, Italian Vogue, if they were going to post it, would not have put my name as a part of it, just because I was a black and 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 you know that and that's been the journey of the black photographer is it's it's been difficult to get your recognition because right. you know before before black lives matter and before the change in our culture you know it it, it was just difficult it was just difficult working space you know mm -hmm. the white photographers got more love than than we got and and so a lot of companies started to a mirror was held to their face and they realized that you know, they had left us out. And so there were, there were a lot of opportunities that were opening up that hadn't been there before. And I was getting phone calls and interviews by uh, publications that had, had previously ignored. So that, that part has been interesting. And, and in many ways, there was a genuineness also. I was using a rental studio the other day, um, and it was, you know, a Caucasian owner. And I could just tell like the, the, the way that he communicated me with me was much different than what I was used to in the past. It was like, it was as if he realized that, you know, this guy is no different than anyone else and I can be 
as gracious with him as I can be with other people. And I've noticed a lot more of that as I'm moving in the space of a commercial photographer that um, I have I don't have to prove who I am when I show up as much as I had to, you know, that sort of like work twice as hard to keep the job sort of thing that all of us have had to do. Um, there's a bit less of that. I'll say amen to that. I, I want to make one point just to, as a point of perhaps clarification. The one thing I'll say yes. about Italian Vogue, especially under its previous editor who is now deceased, you know, they were the ones who did covered black folks in you know, that's a big right. way. You know, that's and Beth Ann Hardison has been very actively involved with Italian Vogue. Just that one, that one uh, property yeah, exactly. yeah. has acknowledged and honored black creatives more than more others. Than so that publication, I'm so glad that they did feature you and, and credit you. They might have done it before, but I think your well, point is a news. fair point. Yeah, yeah. They, they they did. Do you remember those the the black issue they did some years ago? Yes, which and, was amazing. I I still have a copy of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they were they on even, the forefront. Yeah, that's true. I've forgotten that. I'm glad you did clarify that. Yeah, and, and you know, give you, folks that's their due. Pain that you that you you start putting everybody in the umbrella. Oh, they all after down to get me, you know. And it's like it's not always the case. And and at least in that case, I I know that there was a tremendous effort. So it is Fashion Week. Keith, um, it's just beginning. So I, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at anything, but you know, what are your thoughts about Fashion Week this year when it's really the first time that it's opening up again since uh, COVID? It's interesting. From where I'm sitting now, it, um, one of the things that I was charged with doing is uh, trying to uh, send folks to record the shows and video. Yes. And what I found is that we're not quite completely open. There were a lot of shows that were not allowing video on set just yeah. to keep the numbers down. So they were still kind of inching towards how uh, opening up um, mm -hmm. a bit more. Um, we did we did have people on the ground for the Harlem Fashion Week to, that, mm -hmm. you know, to keep up Fashion Week. And from what I can see, that artwork looks good and we'll start putting that stuff up on the site. Um, I find that Fashion Week for me is is not I, because I don't photograph the shows. Mm -hmm. um, it's I tend to sit on the sidelines and 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 wait for the returns, as it were. Um, and I do I have a very interesting process. I'll look at all the shows and video, and I'll start to collect imagery to put into my my research folders for hair and makeup and styling and trends, so that I'm aware of the trends and the styles, and that I'm also able to pull references for work that I'm doing. Um, and so that's how fashion work, fashion week generally works for me, because I know it's a vehicle more for the designers and the buyers to, you know, get their wares out and to uh, build hype and sales. Um, and, and again, because I'm not photographing the shows, you know, right. I really like it. I'm yeah. hoping that the work that, and I just mentioned Beth Ann Hardison, who has been, I think she calls herself a fashion revolutionary, that she, she has worked so hard to ensure that black models remain on runways because there was a time when there were many and then there's been a dearth when there have been very few uh, models of color to grace runways. Mm -hmm. Now that the runways are back up, at least in part, I hope that 
in this space of reflection that we've, that we've been in during COVID and isolation and thinking about being more inclusive, that the designers are showing more inclusive, uh, presenting more inclusive runways. You know, it's still early on, so it'll be interesting it's to see what happens. Yeah. So for Ebony, what's next for Ebony? What can you tell well, us? I can't, yeah, I can't give away too many of the secrets, but we have we have a cover coming out. Um, our next cover launch uh, would be a couple of weeks, I guess. Where are we? Yeah, so not even, maybe next week. September 15th, we'll have a new cover. Okay. Um, of a... Uh, of a of a, a very uh, famous gentleman, we have a guy, and, and, and we can't get a sneak peek. We can't, you, we can't give you a sneak peek or or I any have of to that. Ask. But yeah, you have to ask. But I will just say that um, he uh, comes from the legacy of jazz. Uh, his father's a jazz musician, and that's all I'll say. <laughs> all right, um, that's but um, that was one of the covers that. I didn't shoot. It was I directed that shoot, um, which was very interesting to sit back and be and play a different role, um, and uh, to help with the aesthetics of how it's to be shot, and also to encourage the photographer to do his thing. Is the magazine uh, strictly online, digital, yeah. or is it also in print? Right now, it's strictly online. Um, we do plan a special print issue uh, for a specific concern that I also cannot talk about at this time. Um, but ideally, um, we're looking to move forward. I mean, uh, media has changed, and it happens online now. And so we'd like Ebony.com to reflect uh, the 21st century and beyond. We certainly lean into our legacy. Uh, however, we'd like to bring along the new reader and have them experience the uh, culture that Ebony uh, created when, when I was young. Um, you know, it was a fixture. It was, you know, part of the furniture. Um, well, and, 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 you know, back when we were kids, Ebony was so important because there were very few publications that celebrated black life. I think it can be argued that that is still true that there are very few publications that celebrate, uh, you know, the positive things about yes. uh, the lives of people of African descent. Uh, why do you think it's important now for you with all of your skill and expertise and experience to be at Ebony in this moment? Uh, because I care. Because I grew up in that household where you know, we said it loud, we were black and proud. I grew up in that household where uh, how we appeared was important to us. Um, and, and that the political discussions at the dinner table had everything to do with our, the elevation of our people um, and recognizing when things were not fair and needed to be changed um, and recognizing when the stories that were being told about us weren't true needed to be corrected um, or and the many 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 great stories that weren't being told because certainly we could not have survived or got along if it was all bad and so we do have 
uh, family lives. And we do have solid families and we do have support and educated people in our community. We are not all um, criminals. We are not all, you know, and, and the narrative has been so narrow uh, and it, it, it's going to take us to tell that story. And, and we still need to tell the story because what happened with George Floyd and much of the police brutality was news to so many people. And for us, it, it was old news. It wasn't exactly. news at all. It was something that we were experiencing all the time. And so we, we're not out of the woods yet. Things are way better, yes. But we are not out of the woods uh, telling us, particularly now at a time where uh, so many people have access to media and so many false narratives have been confused for the truth. That's very important to... In fact, I've been teaching high school photography um, for the last few years. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that I try to impress upon my students is uh, media awareness, media education, uh, media literacy, so that you understand that people are putting these things together, that you don't necessarily, because black people have have had to look at the news even before uh, today's media. We've we've always had to look at the news with a grain of salt and be able to see through what was real and what was not, because they were telling fantastic lies about us. Um, and so I try to get my young students to understand that, you know, this is, this isn't necessarily always the truth. It's someone's story. And you want to understand how the story is being told, why the story is being told, look at, you know, and consider telling your story. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Keith Major, for joining me today and for all of the work and projects and magic we've made over the years. Your your work is beautiful and congratulations on being the one directing photos at Ebony now. You know, we we need that brand to flourish and I know that your being there is helping to make that happen. So thank you so much. Thank you, Harriet. And thank you for all that you've done in my career and nurturing uh, what I do and being that person who would call on me and hire me and give me direction that made sense and we photograph beautiful things together. So thank you. You are most welcome, my dear. Thank you, thank you. Oh, what a great conversation. It's Fashion Week. Go out, get dressed up and look fabulous. Just make sure you put on a mask when you do it, you guys. 